Good to see you this morning. It is the most wonderful time of the year, they say. Just looking around the auditorium, seeing the beautiful decorations. Thank you to our team who worked on that. Such a great story, the story of Christmas. It has inspired other great stories. It's a wonderful life. Miracle on 34th Street. This morning we're going to see a miracle in the temple. It's a beautiful thing. We're talking about Advent here, and so for four weeks we're going to be speaking about this idea of Advent. I think many people don't know what Advent is in the Christian culture any longer, and certainly if you're a guest with us this morning, this would be new to you. Advent is four weeks in the church calendar. It's dedicated to anticipating the arrival, which is a synonym for the word Advent, of Jesus of Nazareth, the long-awaited Messiah, the King. Christians from many backgrounds celebrate this time. They reflect on hope, peace, love, joy. Their practices may look a little different, but all focus on the hope-filled coming, the arrival of Jesus. What does it mean? Well, it means arrival, and it signifies the start of an event or the arrival of a person. And so in Christian communities all around the world, again, Advent refers to this four-week season of remembering, celebrating the arrival of Jesus on earth. It's not only a time to reflect on the unexpected nature and and the humble circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth, but in a wonderful, not irony, in a wonderful similarity, comparison, It's a time for all of us also to join in anticipation of when He will come again. To reunite heaven with earth once for all. We could look back at Advent and say this is a historical fact, but aren't we also waiting? I hope you're waiting. If if you don't process that for the next four weeks, then the significance of Advent will be a historical fact for you that is academic. But if you connect the truths of Jews 2,000 years ago who were anxiously awaiting the Messiah with your anxious waiting for the Messiah, then this can be meaningful for you. From the first story to the last, the Bible's a full of poetry, prophecies, biographies, personal letters, and stories. It's the story of the Advent. It informs our understanding of the Advent. When the Bible talks about humans waiting for the promised Messiah who can deliver them, it helps us connect with our own feelings of how long will this go on? When will Jesus come? Amos 9, uh, the prophet Amos wrote, in that day, he wrote to the people of his time, I will restore David's fallen shelter, King David. I will repair its broken walls. I will restore its ruins. I will rebuild it the way it used to be. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the harvester will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow down the hills. That's just a beautiful blessing. When we read about people choosing joy and hope in God's promises, despite their circumstances, then the meaning of Advent takes on even a greater significance. I think about Isaiah 9. 
a wonderful Christmas passage. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. When I was young, I didn't understand that. I thought, yeah, the government will be against him. That's not what that means. The government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will do this. And when the New Testament talks about a second advent, the return of Jesus, we can join, as I said, in that time of waiting in this wonderful and beautiful truth that has been shared by Christians throughout 20 centuries for 2,000 years. This is our truth. John wrote in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now with the people. And He will dwell with them. They will be His people. God Himself will be with them. He will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning. There will be no more crying or pain because the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. So you see, there's a similarity between celebrating Advent, which reminds us how Israel waited for Jesus in their time. And yet for Christians today who are waiting for Jesus to come again, perhaps you're like me. Sometimes you begin to wonder, will he ever come? Perhaps you're like me. And you don't even think that some days and you don't even think he might come. Perhaps it's been so long that you've lost sight of His promise that He's coming. Today's passage can help us with that. It can help us think confidently about God's faithfulness. In fact, the main thought I want to hold up for you today is this. Nothing stops God from being faithful. Nothing stops God from being faithful. Nothing stops God from being faithful to His promises. Nothing stops God from being faithful to His people. Nothing stops God from being faithful. So let's look at this beautiful story together. It's a very cool story. Point number one, God is faithful even if the circumstances of your life seem otherwise. God is faithful even if the circumstances of your life seem otherwise. I have to start outside of the passage just a little bit because Luke wants us to. 
There is a huge connection to the Old Testament here. There's so much imagery of barrenness and Abraham and Sarah and Hannah and Samuel and Nazarite vows and and the priestly uh, incense sacrifice. I mean, it's just so laden with Old Testament imagery. We won't spend a lot of time on it. It's there. Little by little, we'll pick at it. But 400 years ago, from this time, 400 years ago, 400 years before this moment, were the last words that God spoke. These are called the 400 silent years. It's the intertestamental period. Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet to write. Incidentally, Malachi is quoted today. In fact, the last verses of the Old Testament, you just read very similarly worded words. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Last words of the Old Testament, 400 years ago. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you. Before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of their children to their parents. If you lived at this moment 400 years, you hadn't had a word from God. This is after Moses. This is after David. This is after Solomon. This is after Ezra. This is after Zerubbabel. This is after Malachi. This is after Micah. This is after Daniel. Has God spoken? Friends, God is not silent. And yet for these 400 years, it seemed like God might have forgotten. Have you ever felt this tension in your life? God, where are you? I do. The circumstances of just the context of the passage, 400 years have passed. The 400 silent years speak loudly. Incidentally, this is a really, you have to catch all this imagery here I want to say to you before we even begin. There's 400 silent years. There's a woman's silent womb. There's a woman at the end who goes into silent exile. There's a man who is struck mute. (laughs) And all of that in contrast to what? An angel who shows up to break the silence. (laughs) Okay? So as you read this passage, feel the beauty and the wonderful literary device that Dr. Luke gives to us here. God is faithful even if life's circumstances seem otherwise. So you have these 400 silent years that could cause people to think that God is not faithful. And you also have this barren womb. In the days of Herod, verse 5, king of Judea, a priest named Zechariah, of the division of Abijah, he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Have you heard this story before? I've heard it. This this story sounds familiar, doesn't it? Especially the Abrahamic covenant. 
The name Zechariah was a popular priestly name. It means the Lord has remembered. His name reminds you that the Lord is faithful. And in his case, this is obviously dramatically prophetic. Elizabeth was also of priestly descent. She had the same name as the original Aaron's wife. It was a preferred name for a priest's wife. Elizabeth means God is my oath. It's very strong. Her very name points to the promise keeping of God. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth are said to be upright in the sight of God. Beautiful people in God's sight. Now this, what you read there, doesn't mean they were sinless. In a general sense, it says that their lives conform to God's law. Verse 6 emphasizes that, that they obeyed the commandments and the statutes of God's law. Their house probably enjoyed the blessings and happiness that come to homes where both husband and wife are righteous but there's a problem in their relationship. There's barrenness. There's infertility. No children. In most cultures, infertility is an aching disappointment. For some, it's an almost unbearable stress. You might chuckle to know that Lori and I thought we struggled with infertility. If you don't know, we have eight children. But when we first started trying to have children, it was a couple years. And even in those few years, there was heartache. There was sadness, confusion, and questions. For those who deal with that, it is a real burden. But even the burden today, it's not the same as that borne by uh, childish women, childless women in ancient Hebrew culture. Barrenness was considered a disgrace, even a punishment. Luke goes out of his way to make sure we know that Elizabeth and Zechariah's barrenness in this case was not a punishment. They were righteous people. But there are examples. Hagar looked down on Sarah when Hagar conceived, but Sarah remained barren. Leah referred to her former barrenness as misery in Genesis 29. And Hannah probably one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament, wept bitterly over her barrenness until the birth of her son Samuel. Barrenness carried such a moral stigma in Jewish thinking that they thought it was not the fate of the righteous. A priest and his wife, who God says walk righteously and uprightly, carried the weight of a social stigma was very powerful. Elizabeth probably suffered what one commentator called smug reproach. She didn't hide from it. In verse 25, she calls it her disgrace. Do you remember that? She goes into her little exile and she says, God has taken away my reproach or my disgrace. Sometimes the circumstances of your life make it look like God is not faithful. We're not all the way there yet, but I want to tell you, just as we're working through this, that that is not true. But we all battle that. There are a few examples here given. 400 silent years. A silent womb. Where is God in my life? 
Friends, I assure you, He is faithful. But sometimes we wonder. Number two, God is faithful even when everyone around you, everyone else around you is not faithful. God is faithful even if everyone around you isn't faithful. Who are the people maybe around them who aren't faithful? Well, again, I'm outside the text just a little bit. But you remember under, uh, during the exile, under Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Zerubbabel, the Persian king Xerxes had allowed the repatriation of the land. They moved back in. They're rebuilding the temple. The people are coming. They're organizing. they got a sword in one hand and a hammer in the other. They are, they are making it happen. But something has happened now. Rome conquered. And now we live under the political rule of King Herod. If we weren't short this morning, I might have taken a few minutes to remind you of the Herodic dynasty. But it is not great. Also think about the existing Israeli political and religious culture for what you know from the life of Jesus. What's Israel like right now? Was Jesus happy? Corruption. Religious hypocrisy. Whitewashed tombs. Hypocrites. Scribes. Pharisees. Tax collectors. Sanhedrin. The, the, the prevailing culture is not following Jesus. Not following God. We look around at everyone else around us and we say, what is happening? It can cause us to think God has lost control. God doesn't care. God is not paying attention. Friends, again, this is not true. And this is the context. This is the setting in which we'll take a break from three points. I have a third point at the end. But we have a contrast here that we're trying to build. So my main points are talking about God is faithful despite, despite, despite. Let's just take a minute and talk about God's faithfulness, shall we? Because that's where the story now takes us. And we'll have a third point at the end. Despite all this unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. Now while he was serving as priest before God, verse 8, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Here it comes. Nobody knows. This is the day. It's silent. The silence is about to be broken. Nobody knew. The Mishnah, which is an Old Testament Jewish rabbinical source, states that before each of the two daily services, morning and evening prayers with the burning of incense, four sets of lots were used to determine the participants. See, there were divisions of priests in Israel, but not every priest served every day. You think about the high holy days when all the thousands of priests would come together to slaughter hundreds of thousands of, not hundred thousand animals in three hours. They needed all hands on deck at that moment. But they didn't need every priest all the time. They had divisions. This goes back to 1 Chronicles chapter 24 if you really want to do a little bit of digging there. But obviously Zechariah is part of the division of Abijah. 
And so there's 1,000 priests there, and, but they don't need all 1,000 to serve at daily prayers. Do you understand? So the, for a random system of throwing lots, they would determine the participants. In this case, today. Do you love that? There's no accident. This is the divine hand of the providence of God. The lot falls to Zechariah. You never get to do it twice. You only do it once. And how old is he? You met serving as priest your whole life. Many did and never got this privilege. It's like he hit his first I mean, This is a day. Even on your own personal, at the apex of your personal history, the honor of offering incense is one of the greatest experiences in his earthly existence. Many priests never had the privilege. No priest did it more than once. Zechariah is serving God with his fellow priests. He's in the gleaming temple. He's in the court of the priests where the sacrifice is to be made. And then they move into the court of Israel and the faithful worshipers are praying. And then they step into the holy place. Not confused with the Holy of Holies once per year, but into the holy place. And right next to him is the richly embroidered curtain of the Holy of Holies. Cherubim, or wo- cherubim. what are cherubim? Angels are woven in scarlet, blue, purple, and gold. To his left is the table of showbread. Directly in front of him is the horned golden altar of incense. Exodus chapter 30. And to his right is the golden candlestick. Zechariah was not the only one in there. He would go in with, one priest would go in with a ladle of incense and one would go in with a ladle of coals. Okay? Incense, coals. This is said to be the prayers to God. Zechariah purified the altar and waited joyously for the signal to offer the incense so that as it were, the sacrifices went up to God and the people outside are praying and this was a special day. But it was not the day that Zechariah had planned. And there appeared before him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. What John means? God is gracious. You shall call his name, God is gracious. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is the message for Zechariah. Wow. A couple things to observe here. First, he says, your prayer has been heard. Well, which one? He's granted the gift of a son. Is that what he was praying for? It's a good interpretive question. Probably not. 
advanced in age. I don't know about you. Perhaps when they were younger, this was a burning concern. But since he doesn't really even think this is likely possibility, I doubt that was what he was praying for in front of the, or on behalf of all the people. I would guess, and most commentators agree, that he was praying for the general redemption of Israel, the spiritual renewal of Israel. That would be a common prayer for a priest. What's amazing is that God in His kindness and providence answers both His current prayer and perhaps His long lost, though often prayed prayer in the past at the same time. Get out of here. This is beautiful. Can you feel it? Have you ever prayed for something for a long time and then thought, it's probably not going to happen, and your enthusiasm and morale and faithfulness to that prayer diminishes. That's not necessarily immoral, but perhaps you become, things change, and I'm sure at some point in their life, do you believe they prayed for children? Sure they did. They not even been in his mind. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God will add all the other things to you. It's beautiful. Revel in the message here. Can you imagine being Zechariah? You're a priest. You know the Old Testament. You know the message of Malachi. Wow. Revel in the message of God's blessing here. There will be a son. The son will bring great joy and delight. The son will have spiritual fervor. The son must be raised as a Nazarite. And the son will have an unbelievable ministry. What did Jesus say about John the Baptist? Because the whole ministry of John the Baptist was to point people and prepare people to Jesus. There was not another man born among men greater than John the Baptist. But just to make sure we didn't miss anything, in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus connects these things and he says this to, to the people. He says, to be sure, Elijah comes and restores all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, I, the Son of Man, am going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the Elijah of Malachi chapter 4. And he was the forerunner and the prophet to Jesus. It's one of my favorite statements in all of the New Testament for progressive sanctification, for just my understanding of pride and humility and holding on too tight, is what John the Baptist said when his disciples came to him and said, Master, everyone's leaving you and going to him. And John said the simplest, most profound words. He must increase, I must decrease. He, un he understood who it was about. I'd encourage you, I do not have time, to take some time and look at the message of God's faithfulness. I summarized it for you. They're about the sun, but it's a little granular and it doesn't, it, it doesn't have time. It doesn't fit the, the message as well. But it's beautiful. 
love and joy and mercy and peace and blessing. What a way to break the silence. (laughs) Number three, God is faithful even if your faith wavers sometimes. God is faithful even if you waver sometimes. And Zechariah said to the angel, verse 18, this is very, very important, how shall I know this? He asks. You might be thinking here, if you know the story, you probably know the story that comes uh, in two weeks when Gabriel comes back and speaks to Mary. And Mary asks the question too, and she doesn't get struck mute. But the questions are not identical. And I'll leave Mary's question for Pastor Brian. But what Zechariah says is kind of essentially, I need a sign. How will I know? And well, I got to tell you, I read a John, it's not much of his contents in my, in my uh, sermon this morning, but I read a blog post by John Piper entitled, How Not to Talk to an Angel. <laughs> and I just thought the title was really witty. <laughs> In fact, the way he responds. So basically, Zechariah says, hey, I'm old. My wife's advanced in years. And, and he, is he not receiving a sign? He's in the temple, in the holy place. What is the sign? There's an angel. That is a sign. Okay? And he asked for a double sign, I guess. And all I can hear as I try to guess for myself how Gabriel sounds at this moment, because he says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. <laughs> it's almost indignance. I see Sir Ian McKellen playing in the Fellowship of the Ring um, uh, when he's fighting the Balrog in the Goblins uh, tunnels. And he says... You shall not pass. You know, I mean, I just see Gabriel like, I'm done. It's just the, the, the way that he speaks. Look what he says. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak with you and to bring you this good news. God is faithful even if your faith wavers sometimes. Did the message change? This is the word for gospel. I I, I came to bring you what? Good news. I broke the silence. This is the gospel. God remains faithful to His word. Even if your faith wavers, God doesn't change His word. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But not only does God remain faithful to His word, He remains faithful to His servant. God not only redeems Zechariah's story later in chapter 1, I think that'll be three weeks from now. His story's not done. We're reading a portion of it. Because it sounds like he kind of walks out with egg on his face, yes? That's not done. Not done. Four, Four sermons. But in an ironic and beautiful little twist here, God gives Zechariah the sign he he wrongly asked for and turns Zechariah into a nine-month prophet for the significance of John the Baptist's birth. 
God breaks the silence by silencing Zechariah and awakening Elizabeth's womb. This is beautiful. They say you can't make this stuff up. And Zechariah is not able to pronounce the blessing that he's supposed to pronounce when he comes out. This is not supposed to take long. Do you understand? A ladle of incense and a ladle of coals, morning and evening, daily prayers. The people are outside chanting in unison during this time. They have a, the Lord is faithful. They, they're going through a, a prayer ritual while this is happening. It's not supposed to take this long. And Zechariah is supposed to come out fairly quickly and pronounce the blessing of Aaron from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you bless the Israelites. Say to them. So they thought Aaron would come out and say this. Again, the whole silence can't speak, speak, silence thing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. So then they will put my name on the Israelites and God says, I will bless them. Zechariah is not even able to pronounce this blessing. God is faithful. Even if sometimes your faith isn't. The people were waiting for Zechariah. They were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he'd seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service was over, he went home. Elijah was not, uh, Zechariah was not alone in the temple that day, right? His cohorts were there. Imagine, the, it's not recorded for us, but if Zechariah had the incense, what did the guy with the coals think? The priest with the coals. I mean, Luke only gives us details, but these are, there, there's somebody else in there. So they're describing, everybody knows. It's unmistakable. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here. I should invite the praise team back to the platform and We'll look at the last two verses while everybody's moving and just a couple of thoughts of application and then we'll be done. Verse 24 and 25. After these days, Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Again, think about it with me just for a moment here. We started with silence. 400 years of it. And a womb that is quiet, is barren, has never been active. We see the silence broken with the message of God's intervention, God's redemption, God's faithfulness. And the story then ends with our two human main characters back in silence. Zechariah can't speak, and Elizabeth disappears for five months into self-imposed silence. And this is the backdrop for the next three Advent messages about God breaking the silence. What are some thoughts we might take away from this this morning? Three thoughts. Number one, let's think again about God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness, even if life's circumstances seem otherwise. Is God faithful when it seems to you that He's too silent? 
God ever too silent for your liking? I don't know when I noticed this this week, but do you know that the words listen and silent have exactly the same letters? Rhonda went up with the eye. Verify that, yep, okay. It's kind of funny. Maybe they work together. Be still and know that I am God. Be silent, listen. I think we as Christians often forget that our biggest problems are already solved. You know that? You know that? You're looking at your circumstances and you're forgetting something. Your biggest problems are already covered in Christ. What are your biggest problems? Let me help you. Number one, because of your sin, you're an enemy of God. Jesus came to make peace. Check. Our sin carries an eternal death penalty. Jesus came, took your punishment. Check. You were alone. You ever feel lonely, isolated? You were isolated from God. Jesus came and restored your relationship to God. You are now a son or daughter of the eternal king. Check. Lastly, your eternal soul, your soul needs a place to live when your earthly body dies. Jesus is preparing a place for your soul to live forever. And the things of earth, if you turn your eyes on Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This life is short compared to eternity. Do not allow this life to become more important to you than the next life. Do not the circumstances of this life crowd out your hope and joy and your understanding that God is faithful and he has solved your greatest problems. He has. Number two, let's think just again for a second about God's faithfulness when everyone around you isn't being faithful. When everyone else may be saying different things. Consider this quick Bible story about silence from later in Luke's gospel, chapter 19, about the triumphal entry. When Jesus came near to the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Those were messianic prophecies. They were mad that they were connecting him to, to, to the Messiah. And Jesus said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. It doesn't matter what everybody else says. Jesus says, don't worry about what everybody else says. Your praise and worship, you follow me. You are never alone. The stones will worship with you. God is faithful. You tell his story. Don't make the stones speak. And lastly, let's think about God's faithfulness when our own faith wavers. Remember, Zechariah was called righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Sounds like he was doing pretty well, doesn't it? Sounds like he was doing pretty well spiritually. After this encounter with the angel, there's a good chance he felt like the man Jesus spoke to in Mark 9, who said, Lord, I do believe. Can you help me with my unbelief? This doesn't make you a bad Christian or a fake Christian. It makes you human. But we need the right tools to battle unbelief. One of those tools is focusing on God's faithfulness. Just like the Israelites 2,000 years ago were waiting. We're waiting. We have weary and discouraging days. They were saying, when will Messiah come? We are saying, when will Messiah come? Just listen to the promises of God and allow your heart to be washed as I finish. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. My father's house, many rooms. If it were not so, I, what I've told you, I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Is Jesus coming back? Yes. Jesus said in Matthew 24, Therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. Huh. Luke, opening the gospel of, or the, the story of Acts, while they were gazing into heaven, as Jesus went up, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why are you looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken away from you will in the same way come back as you saw him go into heaven. Is Jesus coming back? Amen. Yes. Jesus said, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he's done. Paul wrote, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And John the Apostle, in, the, in basically the last verse of the book of Revelation, in the last book of the Bible, the one who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming. And we pray, amen, come Lord Jesus. There was an advent, there'll be another. Connect them in your brain this season. You think about the first coming of Jesus. Long for, look for, pray for the second coming. Father, thank you for your word. Grow us and change us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.